Well, let me encourage you to do a couple of things if you'd uh, like to. One would be to turn to the second of the two readings, although we're going through John's Gospel uh, looking uh, as we sort of prepare for Easter. Um, I'm, uh, I'm going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, page 1155. So you might like to join me in turning uh, in your Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians 15, page 1155. The other thing that I think you'll find helpful, whether you like taking notes or not, will be just to dig out the sermon outline so you can see where we're going And uh, there's a couple of quotes there as well, particularly that you can follow along as I read them. Well, as we find uh, that Bible in one hand, uh, sermon outline in the other, let me pray for us. We've uh, sung of the cross and of the empty tomb, Heavenly Father. And we pray that we would uh, understand and believe in the resurrection in a way that is uh, life-transforming. Uh, So we would pray, please, that you would do that kind of work in us now. Those of us who are unsure of these things or from time to time wonder if it really happened, please strengthen our faith now uh, that we may be people who not only believe it in our heads but who uh, have our lives changed because of these truths. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I have been um, challenged and I've got to say moved as I've read uh, this book recently. It's the kind of book that you don't need to read all the way through. You can dip in and out. Um, It's called By Their Blood. Uh, It's about Christian martyrs from the 20th century. Did you know that over 100 million Christians have been martyred in the last century? 100 million. And that is more than any other era of the church's history combined. I've been amazed to read uh, people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Nazi Germany during the Second World War who was uh, shot dead. And then the estimated two million Christians who were massacred in the killing fields of Cambodia during the wicked rule of Pol Pot. As I've read of these men and women giving their lives in commitment to Jesus Christ, I've, I've asked myself, how were these Christians able to remain faithful unto death? Can you imagine it? Can you imagine being in that situation yourself? The answer to that question for Bonhoeffer uh, was his confidence in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, This book tells me that on Sunday the 8th of April 1945, the day before he was executed, he held a brief worship service with other prisoners of war. He chose as his uh, text, two texts, first Isaiah 53 verse 5, by his wounds, by the, the, the wounds of the Lord Jesus, by his wounds we are healed. And his other text was this, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, it was the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead that Bonhoeffer was so certain of that he was ready to lose his life, knowing that he wouldn't lose it, that he would gain eternal life. Now, you know, 100 million people in the last century who've died for Christ, but I guess most of us are unlikely to ever be called to die for Jesus. But if we are going to live a wholehearted and faithful Christian life, we too have to have that same certainty about the resurrection that Bonhoeffer and others did. Jesus does tell us to lay down our life for him. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. You've got to be ready to die, maybe not physically, but ready to die to self, to live for him. You can only do that if you're sure of the resurrection. 
Indeed, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then there is no point in being a Christian. That's why I wanted to start in 1 Corinthians, but we'll go to John 19 in a moment to see why uh, John, the end of John 19 is written. But let's just start with 1 Corinthians to make this point. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, there is no point in being a Christian. Page 1155. I remember turning to this passage many years ago now when I was helping lead a student Christian union group at Middlesex University. The person who was supposed to be leading the Bible study that day hadn't turned up. And after we'd waited for a while for him to turn up, uh, the students looked to me to, to lead the meeting. Uh, so there were 10 or 12 there, that's all. And I asked the 10 or 12 people in the room this question. I was sort of thinking on my feet. Uh, this would be, if ever you're stuck for a good Bible study because somebody doesn't turn up, this would be a good thing you could do. Except don't do it with everyone else because they'll know the answer now, you see. But, uh, but that you could do it in the future. I asked them this question, if it were proved that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, if someone, say, found a tomb with Jesus' bones in it, and it could be proved beyond doubt that those were the bones of Jesus, would you still be a Christian? That's how I started the Bible study. I can't recall how everyone responded, but one girl was very definite. Oh, yes, she said, I'd still be a Christian, even if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, because living by Jesus' teaching makes me happy and gives me lots of friends, and if everyone followed this teaching, it would make the world a better place. And there was a few people around the room who nodded. Sounds like such a good answer. It sounds like such a faithful response until you read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Look again at verse 3 that Alison read for us just now. Uh, Paul says, What I received I passed on to you as of first importance. These are one of those things that you can't, you can't sort of get away from. If you get away from this, you haven't got Christianity anymore. What I received I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the Twelve and then to more than 500 people. That's the basis of the Christian faith, that Christ was died, was buried, and rose again. Now notice, although I'm not going to stay on this for a moment, just notice that he died and buried. That's what we're going to see in John 19. But for now, see that if he didn't rise from the dead, you have nothing left. Now turn over the page to verse 14. This is how the Bible study went, basically. Verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. More than that, we're found to be false witnesses about God for we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. See what he's saying? It's absolutely useless. Don't be a Christian, absolutely useless. And what's more, uh, the whole Bible's lying because we've said that he did rise from the dead. And then verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Because you see, he was just a dead man who died like lots of other people who died on crosses. You can't say your sins have been forgiven through the death of Jesus. If he didn't rise from the dead, he just died on a cross. Loads of people did that. So verse 17, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. There's no resurrection for them. And if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're to be pitied more than all men. It's very clear, isn't it? If there is no resurrection for the dead, we're to be pitied more than all men. Uh, yeah, people ought to laugh at us and say, why are you doing that on a Sunday? You could be staying at home or watching the telly or playing tennis. I could be playing tennis right now. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not true, I'm going to go and play tennis. It's okay, I believe it, so I'm going to stay here. Maybe, maybe some of you wish I would go and play tennis, then we could go home. Anyway, that's another thing. 
For Paul, the reason he says that last thing about we should be pitied more than all men, for Paul, living for Christ was costly. Just look down to verses 30, 31 and 32, and it makes it clear that Paul risked his life for the gospel. And as I've already said today, for thousands and thousands of believers all over the world, being a Christian isn't life-enhancing, but life-threatening. Being a Christian today in many parts of the world increases your chance of an early death. And if not death, then imprisonment, and it certainly doesn't make life better. Paul says, what's the point of living for Christ and risking imprisonment and even death if it's not true? So if the resurrection didn't happen, the Bible says, don't come back after Easter. In fact, don't even come over Easter. Indeed, if the resurrection didn't happen, I'll go and get a job at Tesco's, if I can get one, because I know it's quite hard to get jobs, but I'll try and get a job at Tesco's because I haven't got anything else, any other skill. There's nothing else I could do, but I'll try and get a job at Tesco's. I'll encourage the church wardens to lock the doors of this building and we'll tell the Church of England to sell it to a property developer and send all the money to the poor. That's what we're reading here. Without the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, Christianity is nonsense. And for us to be sure of the resurrection, we have to be sure, again, back to 15, verse 3, we have to be sure, verse 3, that Christ died, and verse 4, that he was buried, that is, that he was really dead. If we're not sure that he died and was buried, then we can't be sure that he rose from the dead, can we? That's the point of this passage. Now that brings us to our first point. Oh dear, that was very long. That brings us to our first point. The the, the points are shorter, don't worry. Brings us to our first point and to John's gospel. So turn with me now to John chapter 19 and we're finally where we should have started. But I think now this will make far more sense. The first point on the handout, Jesus was really dead. John chapter 19, verses 31 to 34. Do you see? We've got to be sure that Jesus is really dead. For there to be a real bodily resurrection, there has to be a real physical death. And that's what John wants us to be certain of at the end of chapter 19. Now look, there are enough medics and GPs in this church family who know all about certifying that someone is dead. Some of you, I know, have to do that for a living. You will know better than me that in order to certify someone dead, you need to do these things. And I know because I looked it up on the internet. You need to confirm that the body is lifeless with no spontaneous movement and no sign of respiratory effort. Then you need to confirm there's no pulse. Just in case you'd forgotten, this might be useful tomorrow for the medics. They confirm there's no pulse. And then you need to confirm there's no breathing effort. Is that right? That's what it says on the internet, those three things. And then after five minutes, you have to confirm the absence of pulse and respiratory effort again. You don't have to be able to say respiratory. You just have to be able to see that there's none of it going on. Now, apart from establishing the cause of death to ensure there's been no foul play... Someone needs to certify, be certified dead and to be registered as dead to stop all sorts of scams, don't they? To stop, for example, people continuing to claim state benefits. Because that happens, doesn't it? Somebody's died, but nobody ever tells anybody, and they carry on claiming their benefits, or somebody else does on their behalf. Now, when it came to Jesus' death, the cause of death is not in doubt. He died from being nailed to a cross. But still we need to certify that he was dead so that we won't be open to the greatest scam of all and duped into thinking that he was raised from the dead. We must be sure he was dead. 
Now, we've seen that from 1 Corinthians. If there was no resurrection, there's no Christianity. And so opponents of Christianity know this point very well. And so in order to debunk Christianity, down through the years, there have been attempts to deny the resurrection. How? By suggesting that Jesus didn't really die in the first place. Have you come across these? Islam denies that Jesus died in the first place. The idea that Jesus never really died on the cross can be found in the Quran. In fact, Ahmadijya Muslims argue that Jesus actually fled to India. To this day, there is a shrine that supposedly marks his real burial place in Srinagar, Kashmir. And that kind of theory, that Jesus never really died, has been put forward by many down through the years. In the 19th century, various theories were put forward to try and explain away the resurrection, from the suggestion that Jesus only fainted from exhaustion on the cross, uh, and then he came round again in the, in the tomb, to the theory that he'd been given a drug that made him appear to die, and then he later revived in the tomb again, you see. This is called, these are often called the swoon theories. Now, they've been repudiated by reputable scholars, but it keeps recurring in popular literature. So in 1929, D.H. Lawrence wove this theme into a short story in which he suggested that Jesus had fled to Egypt, where he fell in love with the priestess Isis. Now, the same swoon theory was put forward in Hugh Schoenfield's bestseller, The Passover Plot, published in 1965. It appears again in Donovan Joyce's 1972 book, The Jesus Scroll, and in 1982 in Holy Blood, Holy Grail. And then it popped up again and caused a bit of a stir in 1992 when then a little-known academic from Australia called Barbara Tearing caused a stir by retelling the swoon theory in her book, Jesus and the Riddle of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You might have heard of it. The point is this, opponents of Christianity put these theories forward because they know that if the resurrection can be disproved, then Christianity is dead in the water. But so that we can know that Jesus died, because we need to know that in order to know that he really rose, so that we can know that he really died, John writes what he writes in John chapter 19. Look with me firstly at verse 31. We saw this last week, but it links in with what we're going to see in the next bit. Verse 31. Now, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath, because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. Now, as Ed explained last week from here, breaking the legs of a crucified victim would finish them off pretty quickly, because I'm told that on the cross, you need to push up on the nail in your feet in order to be able to get lung, uh, air into your lungs to breathe. So if you break the legs of a crucified victim, they'd be unable to push themselves up and they'd soon die of asphyxiation. Now, of course, you wouldn't normally break uh, uh, um, the, the victim's legs because crucifixion had been designed to cause maximum pain. It was designed to make death as slow and as painful as possible because it was a punishment. But if for some reason you wanted uh, crucifixion to end quickly, as they did here, then breaking the legs was the way to do it. And so, verse 32, the soldiers therefore came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they didn't break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. Now remember, these soldiers were trained squaddies. They knew how to identify a victim was dead. 
And they were obviously convinced that Jesus was dead, so they didn't break his legs. But to be certain, they thrust a spear into Jesus' side. And note what John says as he looked on into verse 34, a sudden flow of blood and water. Now listen to how prominent physician Alexander Metherall explains this, and uh, the quote is on the, uh, on the handouts. The spear apparently went through the right lung and into the heart. So when the spear was pulled out, some fluid, the, peri the, the pericardial effusion and the pleural effusion came out. This would have the appearance of a clear fluid like water, followed by a large volume of blood, as the eyewitness John describes in his gospel. Now, there's lots of medics here. I'm always, on a, I'm always on dodgy ground when I start doing this sort of thing from the pulpit, but I think that's right. The point is this. John wants us to know, because he saw it with his eyes what came out, he wants us to know Jesus is really dead. They didn't break their legs. They put the spear up. When they put the spear up, these two, what appeared to be water and, and blood came out. Something clear and something red came out. So we can know that Jesus really was dead, and we need to know that to know that he really rose from the dead. And that's the point in the next verses as well. Secondly, Jesus was really buried. Now, in verses 38 to 42, we read, you see, how Jesus' body was prepared for burial and then how it was buried. Verse 38, later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. And with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. And he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who'd earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus bought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. And taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. And this was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. And then they put the body in a tomb, verses 41 and 42. Two men. Two men of considerable standing in the community, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. These two men prepared the body of Jesus for his burial. And this is crucial. This wasn't a quick stuffing the corpse into a body bag, zipping it up in a few seconds flat. No, notice the detail. They had spices, a huge quantity of spices, verse 39. And they had burial cloths, verse 40, to put around the body. And end of verse 40, they took great care over the process. You see, they followed Jewish burial customs. This process simply couldn't be rushed. And so these two men were not just eyewitnesses looking on from a distance. They touched the body of the dead Jesus. They'd have known if he was alive. They could tell without any doubt that the body of Jesus was lifeless and with no spontaneous movement and no sign of respiratory effort. If you'd have asked them, they'd have confirmed that there was no pulse and they'd have told you there was no breathing effort. And never mind leaving it five minutes before they did that. This would have taken a long time. They'd seen it again and again over a long period. And by naming the men, John is saying to his first readers, go and ask them for yourselves. They're still alive, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, you know who they are, go and find out for yourself. They'll tell you that Jesus was really dead and really buried, because they're the ones who buried him. And so all the spurious theories suggesting that Jesus didn't really die on the cross, that he revived in the tomb, just don't add up. I love these words from the American uh, philosopher and theologian William Lane Craig. We're, we're over the page, if you're still following. 
He said, I think people who push these alternative theories would admit, yes, our theories are implausible, but they're not as improbable as the idea of the resurrection. However, says Craig, at this point, the matter is no longer a historical issue. Instead, it's a philosophical question about whether miracles are possible. Do you see his point? People put these other theories forward to disprove the resurrection because they don't believe that any kind of resurrection from the dead is possible. And so they're looking for another answer. But the other answers they come up with are less plausible than somebody being raised from the dead. Or, as I've already suggested, as with Islam, they're putting these other theories forward to disprove Christianity because they know that the resurrection is the linchpin on which Christianity stands or falls. But you see, as we look at the credible eyewitness documents in the Bible, we see that none of the alternatives are plausible. In these verses, Jesus, uh, John says, believe me, Jesus really died. I saw it with my eyes. And he was really buried. Go and ask Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus if you don't believe me. And he says that so that we know when we read on to chapter 20, there's only one conclusion we can come to, and that is that Jesus is really, actually, bodily risen from the dead. And that's the third point on the handout. And that's what we see in chapter 20. Now, I'm not going to go through chapter 20 now. You'll be pleased to know. As we're given confidence to know that Jesus really died and was really buried and therefore really bodily rose from the dead in verses 38 to 42. We see two men, and in these two men, Joseph Arimathea and Nicodemus, we see why we need to know that Jesus was risen. Firstly, Joseph Arimathea. Look what we're told about him, verse 38. Later, Joseph Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. Isn't that interesting? He feared the Jews. Now, he had very good reason to fear the Jews. For remember, it was the Jewish leaders who persuaded Pilate to have Jesus crucified. Joseph knew that if the Jewish leaders knew that he, Joseph, followed Jesus, and if they knew that he'd taken the body and given it a dignified burial, they would have put him out of the synagogue. They would have treated him as a social outcast. He'd have lost all his friends and all that, all that he'd known in his life. Very risky business. No wonder he was secret about it. For Joseph of Arimathea, it was a dangerous and potentially very costly decision to be a follower of Jesus. He feared the Jews. But then look on to, and this is new to me. I've never seen this before until this week. Look on with me to chapter 20 and verse 19. Look who else feared the Jews and why they feared the Jews. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. See, isn't that interesting? Exactly the same phrase. The disciples feared the Jews. Exactly the same response as Joseph of Arimathea. And here's the point. Before they'd seen the bodily resurrected Jesus, they were fearful. Chapter 19, verse 38, Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly... Chapter 20, verse 19, the disciples were followers of Jesus, but met in secret behind locked doors. Here's the point. Until we're convinced of and confident in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, while we may be disciples of his, we'll keep our faith secret. We'll be nervous of what it might mean for us to nail our colours to the mast. We'll not stake our lives on it, not risk our jobs for it. 
not lose our reputation for it, not be willing to be ridiculed by our colleagues and friends for it. Must have been 12 or 13 years ago now, I I led a, a church weekend away on the subject of being a Christian in the workplace. After one of the sessions, during the coffee break, one man in his late 40s came up to me and said, I've worked now in the same office for 18 years and I've never told my colleagues that I'm a Christian. I've got to tell you, I was staggered. This man was a real Christian believer. He had a very real testimony about how he became a Christian. He could articulate clearly the gospel. He was fully involved in his church. He was a member of the PCC. But he was fearful of what his colleagues might say and what they might do if he said he was a disciple of Jesus. Like Joseph of Arimathea, he was a disciple, but secretly. And if that's true for you too, the way to overcome that fear and to publicly declare your allegiance to Jesus Christ is to be sure of the resurrection. For in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can be sure of life beyond the grave for ourselves. And that is the trump card, isn't it? If I know I'm going to be raised from the dead, and when I'm raised from the dead, eventually spend all eternity with Jesus in the new creation, not floating on a cloud, incidentally, you know, uh, with a harp, in in a physical new heavens and new earth, a bit like this, but with all the rubbish taken out, If I know that, I can stake my life on it, can't I? Even if it means me losing my friends, or my reputation, or my job, or my life. I can stake my life on it, knowing that in the resurrection, I'm not only standing for something that's true, but I stand to gain everything. The resurrection means I can stand stand firm publicly and without fear. That's what Joseph of Arimathea needed to know in order to move from being a secret believer to being a public follower of Jesus Christ. The last uh, little uh, study of a person, Nicodemus, very briefly, as I close, what of Nicodemus? He, verse 39, accompanied Joseph of Arimathea and crucially, John tells us, you see verse 39, that Nicodemus had earlier visited Jesus at night. Now, John is pointing us back to chapter 3 of his gospel and reminding us of everything we've discovered about Nicodemus. So come back with me to chapter 3. It won't take long. Page 1065, chapter 3 of John's gospel. Chapter 3, verse 1. This is the first time Nicodemus turned up. See, chapter 3, verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night. There's our reference. See, when he first visited Jesus, he was on the side of the Pharisees. We're told here he came at night, which is more than a comment on the time of day. It tells us that Nicodemus came under cover of darkness, you see. He's, he's a bit like Joseph Arimathea. It's all secret. And most commentators think that that night, ref- that night reference reflects that Nicodemus was in the dark spiritually and at that point that he was actually on the side of darkness, that he was against Jesus. But this encounter with Jesus had a most profound impact on Nicodemus. See, flip over to chapter 7 and we meet him again. Chapter 7 and verse 50, page 1073. 
This time, as the Pharisees begin to question the temple guards about Jesus and accuse them of being taken in by Jesus, see how Nicodemus pipes up in Jesus' defence. Verse 50, Nicodemus, who'd gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, one of the Pharisees, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's doing? And they, the other Pharisees, replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you'll find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. This is very interesting. First Nicodemus chapter 3 goes in the dark. Now Nicodemus is not quite prepared to write Jesus off as all the other Pharisees are doing. And he's even prepared to stand up a little bit for Jesus. And then he's accused of siding with Jesus. And with that in our mind, come back now with me to chapter 19. Uh, page 1088, chapter 19 and verse 39. Now this is the third time we see Nicodemus. And he's come to bury Jesus' body with Joseph of Arimathea, willing to make a stand. But interestingly at this point, while John says of Joseph he's a, a believer, albeit a secret one, he doesn't describe Nicodemus that way. We've seen Nicodemus, through John's Gospel, gradually moving towards being on the side of Jesus. But we don't know yet whether he's really a believer. We never find out. I like to think that, that he probably did become a Christian, but, but we don't know. And here's the reason we don't know. Nicodemus is mentioned here for us to ask the question, what would it take for a man like Nicodemus to become a follower of Jesus Christ? Someone who's has asked the questions of Jesus. Someone who's prepared to keep an open mind about Jesus. Someone who feels well disposed towards Jesus. So much that he's ready to identify with Jesus in his death. What would it take for a man like Nicodemus to become a full and open disciple of Jesus Christ? Well, you know the answer, don't you? Because I've been banging on about it all, all night. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If Nicodemus was certain of that, then he'd become a follower. That's the point, you see. Now, I imagine that there are people here tonight who relate to Joseph and to Nicodemus. Some are like Joseph. You're secret about being a follower of Jesus Christ. You've come here, but you haven't told anybody at work. Or there are people in your family who don't know you're a follower of Jesus. You are a follower, but you haven't told some people. You're secret. Others of you are like Nicodemus. You're not yet convinced, but you're really drawn to Jesus. That's why you've come. But you're not yet following and those of us who are convinced and are followers will meet people like this, people like Joseph and Nicodemus. What do we need to say to them? What do we need to say to you if you're asking these questions? Well, the answer is this. Look into the resurrection. What you need is good, solid evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. Then you will have everything you need to follow Jesus completely and openly. See, if you got the answer... If you knew that Jesus really was a follower of Jesus, you'd be able to say, yeah, I can, uh, that Jesus really did rise from the dead. You'd say, yeah, I can follow him. So two books that I want to recommend to you. One is a very old one. It's called Who Moved the Stone by Frank Morrison. Uh, it was written by uh, this guy who, who's a lawyer. And uh, it starts, uh, the, first, uh, the first chapter is the book that refused to be written. He set out to write a book to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he ended up writing a book that proved the resurrection of Jesus Christ because the evidence, he said, was by far in favour of Jesus having risen from the dead. 
The other book that I've enjoyed reading recently is Lee Strobel, The Case for Christ. And there are some middle chapters here uh, that, uh, that are all about um, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. If you're not sure, read these books. That's what will move you from being secret and uncertain to being a wholehearted follower of Jesus Christ who would be prepared to stand up and lose your life for it. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you very much indeed for these uh, eyewitness accounts in your word in the Bible. Eyewitness accounts that give us certainty that Jesus died, that he was buried, and that he rose again. Help uh, all of us, each one of us here, whether we've been Christians for years or still looking into things, to be certain of those things so that we can follow Jesus, not secretly, but openly and wholeheartedly giving our whole lives to the one thing that really matters in life, serving you. And we ask it through Christ our Lord. Amen.